All right. Good morning, everybody. We're going to get started here. Uh, Let's open up in a word of prayer, and then we'll get started with the class. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. Lord, we just ask your blessing upon it. Father, we uh, pray that you would uh, just guide us in in your word today and guide us uh, as we go into the, the service to follow, and we just pray that you would be pleased with everything we do, and we just ask this in your name. Amen. All right. Turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 17. That's where we're going to be today. We're going to look at the first six verses of Revelation 17. Uh, we've spent the last four weeks in, in uh, Exodus uh, chapters 38 and 39, kind of talking about the Gog and Magog passages, uh, kind of coinciding with a lot of what we're going to see here shortly in Revelation. Now, To kind of catch us back up, I want to actually begin by reading verses 17 through 21 of Revelation 16. And that's kind of where we left off back there, um, you know, like five weeks ago. So it says, The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne, saying, It is done. Then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since mankind has been on earth. So tremendous was the quake. The great city split into three parts and the cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of, his, of, of the fury of his wrath. Every island fled away and the mountains could not be found. From the sky, huge hailstones, weighing, uh, each weighing about 100 pounds, fell on people. They cursed God on account of the plague of hail because of the the plague was so terrible. That's where we left off in chapter 16, before we started looking at the Ezekiel passage. Um, You know, in particular, you look at verse 19, and and it it talks about Babylon the Great. Um, God remembered Babylon the Great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. And that's what we're going to look at today. As we get into chapter 17, we start talking about Babylon the Great. Uh, We're going to spend really two weeks on this. We're going to cover verses 1 through 6 today, and then we'll we'll try to cover verses 7 through the rest of the chapter next week. Really what you see is 1 through 6 kind of uh, state kind of things that, you know, this is Babylon the Great, this is kind of like the descriptors of Babylon the Great. Uh, And then when you get into the following verses, they really kind of go back and interpret essentially what was just said in the first six verses. So we're not going to do like a lot of uh, discussion today on who is Babylon the Great, what is Babylon the Great, those kind of things. We're going to kind of do an overview, but we're going to save most of that for next week. So if you have questions about that, you're probably going to have to save them for next week because as you, like I said, when you get into that, the Bible actually starts interpreting itself, which is, is a great thing when it does that. Uh, you know, and so it, we'll get kind of the symbols today, and then the Bible will start kind of explaining them next week. Uh, so like I said, we'll hold off on that. I did think it was interesting, and this is just a reminder to, for us to pray uh, for the people in Turkey and Syria for the, the horrendous earthquake that's, that's taken place there. And I just, man, just stuck in my head as I was reading, you know, these verses here leading up to chapter 17, talking about, you know, just this earthquake that will happen that will be the worst that the world has ever seen. And I was just thinking, you know, it's such a relevant thought 
uh, for this, you know, what we're seeing right now. I think uh, this morning I saw on the news the death toll is up to 28,000 uh, people uh, at this point. And so it's, uh, yeah, it's just, it's staggering. I mean, it's going to probably be over 30,000 people, well over that by the time it's all done. So uh, just keep those people in your minds, keep them in your prayers. Um, you know, I just keep thinking this is, this is one of the kind of the early spots for, for Christianity, you know, it's, it's you know, one of the places that the Bible really started having early impact was in this very area that we're talking about. Uh, so, you know, just keep, keep those people uh, in your prayers. Um, verse 17, I want to do a little bit of an intro uh, at, before we start tackling this because this is a, a, um, this is a, a very pivotal part of the scriptures. It's a greatly debated part of Revelation uh, you know, and, and it's, there's just so many ideas about what is going on here. Uh, so I just kind of want to read a, a little bit of an intro to kind of lead us up to that um, and what we're going to see here in, in chapter uh, 17. It says, chapter 17, verses 1 through 6, the fact that one of the seven angels who had one of the seven bowls invites John to view the punishment of the great prostitute evidences that in some way or another the vision of chapters 17 and 18 relates to the seven bowls of wrath. If you look at verse 1 of chapter 17, it says, One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come and I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits on many waters. And we just ended the, the bowl judgments. But in a, in a real way, this is kind of a continuation of the bowl judgments. Uh, you know, some people look at it as giving additional information to what we read in chapter 13, and it does do that to a certain degree, but in a very real way, it's a continuation of the bowl judgments that we just went through, okay? And that's kind of what he is talking about here. So whether this is viewed as an actual part of the judgment of the se seventh angel's bowl or is taken to be further explanation of the materials beginning in chapter 13 and including the seven bowls of wrath, cannot be decided with certainty. This commentator leans toward the first conclusion since especially the seventh bowl of wrath which is poured out into the air is said to involve God's memory of the crimes of Babylon the Great. And actually, uh, you know, the different commentators I read this week all agreed on this. It's one of the few times you kind of read it and they all seem to agree. Uh, so they all kind of agreed that this is really, you know, kind of a continuation of, of what we saw in, in, in the bowl judgments. Um, and again, let me uh, just read another brief section here. It says, interpretation of the apocalypse involves, above all else, the ability to identify properly the diverse figures to whom John introduces the reader. In addition to the woman and the two beasts, there are seven hills and ten horns, all of which must be deciphered in order to determine the mind of the seer. By far, however, the scarlet woman, who is the central figure of these paragraphs, is the most important. The chapter provides at least ten observations, which as a unit uh, assist in her identification. One, she is a prostitute. Two, she sits on many waters. Three, the kings of the earth are her paramours. Four, she rides a seven-headed, ten-horned scarlet beast. Five, she carries a golden cup filled with the abominations. Uh, six, she has the title mystery. Seven, she bears the identity with, Bab with Babylon. 
8, she is dressed in purple and scarlet and is fabulously wealthy. 9, she is drunk, having imbibed extensively the blood of the saints. And 10, she is identified with a great city that rules over all the kings of the earth. This impressive resume becomes the focus and clue uh, to the paracope or story. That's, that's kind of what paracope means that follows. So that's kind of what we're going to see in these first six verses. Um, it's a lot going on in six short verses, all right? So let's begin. I want to just read all six, and then we'll just start breaking them down. We're actually going to take kind of two at a time and break, break them down. As one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, and I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits on many waters. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery, and, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones, and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand filled with, the abomin uh, with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. The name written on her forehead was a mystery. Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who bore the testimony of Jesus. When I saw her, I was greatly astonished. All right, let's start taking a look here. Let's look at verse 1 to start with, because we see two of those ten characteristics that he mentioned in verse 1. First of all, she is called the great prostitute. Now, I want to kind of read something here to define uh, that term for us. Um, it says here, prostitute, the word translated prostitute is the word porneia, uh, which is the same word that uh, pornography comes from, all right? So it's, it's the same word, and it can be used in different ways. Uh, and here it's being, being translated as prostitute. It denotes general sexual licentiousness. The usual word for adultery, moakeia, uh, gives, away, gives way here to the morally encompassing term that ref, uh, simply refers to reckless and immoral behavior in the sexual realm. In the history of Israel, idolatry and general unfaithfulness to God are always presented in terms of spiritual adultery. And here this unfaithfulness is profound. The woman has established a way of life which is the path of rebellion against God. Now the point that he's making there is very important as we, as we try to understand this. A lot of times when we read this, we're, you know, it's, it's, she's called Babylon the Great, the great prostitute, and, and it, it, people start thinking of an actual woman. But remember, this is, this is a symbol of, of something much larger than that. This, this is talking about uh, the Antichrist kingdom. In specific, this is talking about the, the religious system of the Antichrist kingdom. You know, uh, we're going to see here shortly she's riding on a beast, and of course the beast is the Antichrist, and he represents kind of like his political arm. Essentially, she is the representative of the false prophet, of the religious system that the Antichrist sets up during the last days uh, where people will worship him. So, you know, she's, that is why she is called the great prostitute, the, 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 the whore of Babylon. Uh, you know, because, as, as the author stated there, in the Old Testament, 
adultery and idolatry were always kind of used the same terms. Like God often in, in, in the prophets, both the major and minor prophets, referred to Israel's idolatry and, and them going after false gods as adultery against him. God saw himself as being married to the Jewish people. He referred to them in marriage terms. They were his, his bride. When, when the kingdom essentially split, he, God had two wives, essentially, the, Judah and Israel. And he used marriage terms to describe them all throughout the Old Testament prophets. You know, and, and they, they cheated on him. Read the book of Hosea. That's everything that the book of Hosea is about. Hosea was told to go marry a literal prostitute in order to symbolize to Israel what Israel was doing to him. How they were cheating on him, they were committing adultery against him, uh, you know, and so God always uses that, that kind of symbolism of a marriage for his relationship with his people. He carried that over into the New Testament because he calls the church the bride of Christ. So this is, is a, a very, very common way that God refers to his people and his relationship to them. So he, he sees the, the religious system of the Antichrist as a whore, you know, a, a, as a prostitute who is pulling away, uh, you know, all the people of the earth into an illicit relationship with him, with the Antichrist. So that is what we're talking about here, okay? This, this is still the Antichrist kingdom that, that we're talking about. This is the, 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 um, the work, essentially, of the false prophet. Uh, that is who this, this is, is making reference to. Um, you know, we had that unholy trinity that we saw back a few, a few weeks ago, uh, you know, where Satan, the dragon, is the one who is empowering and motivating all of this. But, but then we have the, the, the beast, the Antichrist, who is the one carrying it out here on the earth. And then we have the false prophet who we saw rising up out of the sea, uh, you know, who is, is also a, called a second beast, who is, is really the religious force behind the Antichrist. So that's kind of what we're seeing. Yeah, Tim. Uh, probably not, no. It's just using that idea of, of uh, adultery and, and sexual looseness as a, uh, kind of a symbol for people kind of cheating on God, you know, committing idolatry uh, and, and equating that idolatry with, you know, adultery. Uh, and, and I think they're just using the strength of that language to say, show that the false prophet is drawing away most of the world into a, you know, a, an illicit relationship with the Antichrist instead of with the true God. Yeah, yeah, so I doubt if there, I mean, there, there's certainly money involved to the point that the Antichrist is, I'm sure, trying to get rich. But, but you know, there, there's always a money trail. That's exactly right. Uh, but that's really kind of not the focus here. The focus is more just the false worship. You know, and so that's kind of what we're seeing here uh, is, is, you know, from... Babylon the Great is, is this uh, false worship that, that, you know, he is leading. Uh, something else that we kind of uh, see here, is it, it says, the second clue is that he sits on many waters. 
Now, we're not going to define that today because, again, that's one of the things that will be self-defined next week. The passage, you know, the rest, rest of the passage, when we look at it next week, will tell us what that means. But essentially, you know, it, it means that, that this is people. Um, you know, the, 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 the many waters is, is actually people. It, it's people, multitudes, nations, and languages is the, is the way it's interpreted. So, in other words, the people of the world. You know, the idea of sitting on someone is the idea of controlling them, you know, you ever have anybody sit on top of you, like sit on your chest, and you, and you try to move? You know, it, it's hard to, to move if somebody is sitting on top of you, especially if they have any kind of weight. And so it's the idea of dominating someone and controlling someone. You know, and so this, this you know, false, uh, you know, teacher, false prophet, this, this uh, whore of Babylon is sitting on the peoples and the languages of the world, uh, you know, drawing them all away and dominating them. That's, that's kind of the picture. And like I said, we'll talk more about that next week. Some, you know, some translators uh, say here that, that sitting beside the waters, but, but on is really the proper designation because the normal way that the word is used is upon. And so really it fits more with being on than being beside. It can be beside, but but it's probably correct to say that, that, you know, he's, that the prostitute sits on many waters. Um, well, okay, I already covered that. Let's edit a little bit here as I'm going. Uh, we also see in verse 2, uh, you know, our, our kind of next uh, little clue here. It says, with her the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. So we see here that, that the effect that this false prophet, the, the prostitute of Babylon, is having on the earth is not only dominating them, but it's dominating them through the fact that, that Satan has enticed the leaders, the rulers of the earth, into this relationship. And by doing that, has enticed the people of the earth. You know, so it's from the highest levels to the lowest, you know, they're, he's, he's calling them all into this false worship, the, the, the worship of the Antichrist. It's happening, you know, from, from kings to, to peasants. It, 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 it doesn't matter. You know, the, uh, the, the effect is, is universal. And again, we'll talk more about these things, uh, you know, next week. It's, but it says they were intoxicated uh, with with her adulteries, it's it's kind of the idea of of somebody being drunk on something and losing their mind, losing the way to properly think. Uh, they're they're confused and and intoxicated by the things that the false prophet is saying, and they don't know how to think properly, and they're making bad decisions, and 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 they're they're you know falling under the the spell, if you will, of 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 the false prophet. Now, we see here kind of a, a very unhealthy, uh, remember, this, this is the entirety, really, of the Antichrist system. Satan is empowering all this. He is behind all of this. But there are these two earthly, you know, people that are carrying this out, the Antichrist and the false prophet. So really you see here a very unhealthy kind of union 
of church and state, essentially. You have the political realm, you have the Antichrist, you have the spiritual realm, you have the false prophet. And they together are bringing to bear Satan's influence and Satan's power on the earth, and they're drawing people away. Rulers and right down to just regular everyday people. They're drawing all these people away, and people don't realize it. They're intoxicated by it. They, all the promises, all the wonderful things that they're saying and what they'll do for them. Also, the threats. Remember, we talked about that a few weeks ago because they told him, if you don't take the mark of the beast, if you don't bow down and worship the image of the, of, of the, of the beast, you're going to be killed or thrown in jail. So they're using the, you know, the false promises and also the threats to you know, dominate people. And people have bought into it. Uh, remember the testimony that God gave of the saints who, who did not take the mark. He said they, they didn't love their, their life you know, uh, up until death. Like they, 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 they were willing to die, in, in other words. You know, death, they, they, they saw death as, as, as being a reasonable sacrifice so they didn't have to take the mark of the beast. They were not going to betray God they didn't love their lives so much that they would betray God and say, okay, I'll take that mark. You know, so it, people who had true faith, people who had a true commitment, you know, they, they didn't take the mark, and many of them perished because of that. But the others are being dominated by these two, by the, the, the false prophet and the antichrist, both uh, you know, in, as far as temporal power, you know, the politics of the day, uh, the Antichrist is setting up his kingdom, his system, uh, but then also spiritually, you know, he, he has the, the false prophet kind of pushing his agenda spiritually to people and saying, hey, buy into what the Antichrist is, is trying to say. Now let's look at verses uh, 3 and 4. It says, then the angel carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and some of you might have desert, it's the same word, uh, some translate it desert, some, spirit, some wilderness. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. She held a, a golden cup in her hand filled with the abominations and the filth of her adulteries. All right. First of all, what's this wilderness? What, what is the desert? There's been a great deal of speculation over this. I want you guys to hearken your minds back to a number of weeks ago when we first started talking about this. Um, many people, there, there's three places that people associate with the Antichrist kingdom. There is a literal rebuilt kingdom, uh, uh, rebuilt Babylon on the Euphrates River. You know, Babylon is used as a symbol for the Antichrist. Uh, that's why, you know, right here we have the, you know, the, the prostitute of Babylon or the whore of Babylon. So some people believe that the Antichrist will build his kingdom, rebuild Babylon right on the Euphrates River, and that's where the Antichrist kingdom will be. Others say, no, the center of his power is going to be in Rome, okay? And, we'll t and, and again, we'll talk more about that 
as we go, because it's, it's easy enough to see that, but we'll talk more about that mostly next week. Others say, no, it's in Jerusalem. And, and if you remember, when we talked about it, we talked about how in some aspects, all three seem to be true. That he has taken essentially the spirit that started in Babylon, the whole way back to the Tower of Babel and the rebellion against God and that idea of false worship and leading people away in false worship and in, you know, kind of political direction. You know, hey, let's go, let's, let's start our own thing and let's do our own thing and let's rebel against God. That all kind of started, you know, back in Babylon in chapters 10 and 11 of Genesis. And that whole you know, idea kind of carried through the rest of, of the scripture up until the, you know, Babylon carries away Israel, uh, you know, and then ultimately we get to the time of Rome, and we discussed how a lot of Christians in John's day, Christians of, of this era and the era that followed after it immediately, they referred to the, to the Roman Empire, the, the empire they, they lived in, as Babylon. Because they saw the evils in Rome, they were persecuted by Rome, and they saw it as a connection to ancient Babylon and the rebellion against God. But yet we also see passages that, that seem to strongly suggest that the Antichrist will want to use Jerusalem and the imagery of Jerusalem as God's city, God's beloved place, as you know, a place that, where he's going to set up this image of the beast and he's going to... you know. Uh, use the, the, the temple for, for false worship and desecrate the temple. And so there does seem to be a connection. It, 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 it does seem to be that he has kind of started a new Roman Empire, kind of restarted the Roman Empire, which is really seen as a continuation of Babel, but he is also doing stuff in Jerusalem, you know, and, and setting up large portions of what he does in Jerusalem. So we kind of have all three elements. So this word desert is, is you know, hotly debated among scholars because people who believe that uh, you know, his kingdom will be centered in an actual city of Babylon, they point to the fact, well, that's in the middle of the desert. So that, this, you know, this proves that. Other people go, well, no, wait a minute, Jerusalem's also, that's also a desert climate, so that really doesn't prove anything. You know, and other people see it as more symbolic, and, you know, it, it, he went out into the desert, and, and one, he's either showing them the, the desolation of what the Antichrist has done, that in the midst of his desolation, he sees this beast that's led the world into, this, into all these horrible things, or, you know, the desert is kind of, a, uh, you know, seen almost as, um, you know, you have nothing. You know, this is all leading them to nothing. It, it's, it's, you know, all leading them to essentially the barrens and the waste spiritually and physically that, that the Antichrist is ultimately going to lead them to. I, you know, I'm not going to get in the midst of the stone throwing on this one, let them all fight over it. Uh, in the end, it doesn't really matter. Uh, you know, the, the, the ultimate truth is it, that you know, the Antichrist is leading the world into destruction. He will ultimately be destroyed. His enterprise will come to nothing. You know, and, and, and so whether this is a, a, an actual reference to a city in the desert 
And, and which one that is, I, I don't know. Um, I do not think it's m- more, I don't think it's really likely that there's going to be a rebuilt city in Babylon because most of the focus seems to be either in Rome or Jerusalem. So I think that's highly unlikely. But either way you look at it, this doesn't really prove the case. It, it's probably more of a reference to, you know, just the, the total effect that the ba- you know that 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 this false prophet of Babylon is having on the world, uh, it, it's you know the, the world is left with nothing. But in the midst of this desert, we see the beast. Uh, we see the, the, this whore sitting on uh, the, a beast. And again, remember, this is a combination of of both the the, the spiritual uh, and the political realm of the Antichrist. The beast is the Antichrist, but sitting on top of that, riding essentially this, this beast is, you know, is, is the, 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 this prophet, prophet or a prostitute of Babylon. The, the, the uh, spiritual and political system of the Antichrist are together. One rides upon the other. Now, it's interesting as we get on later into this, and, and we'll talk more about this next week, we're going to find out that, that uh, the, you know, the beast doesn't really like the false prophet much. Uh, there, there's resentment there, even in Satan's camp. Uh, and, and doesn't that just fit? You know, you can almost just imagine that the two of them wouldn't like each other very much. And we'll find that out. Uh, and, and God is very much behind engineering that. And so we'll, we'll talk about that next week. But here we see the two of them together, uh, you know, combined. Now, we also see that this... This you know, beast is, is horrendous looking, has seven heads and ten horns, and, and we're not really going to talk about that today because, again, that is going to define itself next week. You know, the, the passage we look at uh, next week will we'll deal with, with that. So we're going to basically save that for, for next week. Verse 4 really deals with the great wealth of the Antichrist kingdom, and in particular, uh, this the spiritual kingdom of the Antichrist, the the the, the prostitute uh, of Babylon, woman it says was dressed in purple and scarlet. Let's just start with the purple and scarlet. Purple and scarlet red were two extremely difficult colors to make in the ancient world, especially in garments. How many of you remember Lydia in, in the New Testament? It talks about her in Acts. It says she was a seller of purple. You got any, anybody remember that? And it says Lydia was a wealthy woman. She was actually from, from an area in modern-day Turkey uh, you know, that was famous for purple dyes. They would take it from mollusks uh, you know, and the, the dyes of, of, of different uh, sea creatures, and they would make this purple dye and, 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 you know, that people became extremely wealthy with purple dye. Purple clothing was very, very rare, and only royalty really wore purple. In fact, it coined a phrase called wearing the purple. And what wearing the purple meant is that you were royalty. You were somehow connected to the ruling house of wherever, wherever it, wa- it was that, that you, know, you were at. You know, you wore the purple. So here we see that, that the, uh, this false prophet is decked out in purple, the color that only royalty really wore, or the very, very wealthy and influential. 
Scarlet is very much the same way. Scarlet was a very hard color to make, and so there were very little, you know, like scarlet red clothing of the time, and it was a symbol of wealth. If you could afford scarlet clothes, you were wealthy, and people, if people saw you wearing it, everybody knew that you had money. And so in John's day, if someone was wearing purple and, and red, and it's funny, I look back over the audience and I see several purple and I see, you know, several red, uh, and it's kind of, it, you know, it's just, this is so common now. But you have to remember, in John's day, in the day this was written, this would have carried significance to people because it would have said, it would have screamed wealth right away. So as soon as John's initial audience read this, it, it, you know, it, it was like a neon sign that said wealthy. You know, and, and so the great wealth of this religious uh, kingdom of the Antichrist. Now that, you know, kind of raises the idea of who this might be. And like I said, we're going we're gonna to save that for next week, and we'll talk about, more about that next week. But we'll explore the idea that, that, uh, that you know, this, this false teacher, false prophet, uh, you know, the prostitute of Babylon uh, has extreme wealth, amasses extreme wealth. Now, we see more signs of wealth as we go on here. It says uh, that this, you know, this prostitute was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. So not only the clothing itself ha having wealth, but also the jewelry, the, the, the gold and, and the pearls and, and, and all the jewels that glittered uh, as, as, you know, as this beast wore its, wore its, its, its clothing. Uh, it just, again, practically screamed wealth and ostentatious wealth, you know, showing off the wealth, you know, status. And, and that's kind of the, the, the idea. Um, interesting is the cup that is held by this woman. It says she held a, a, a golden cup in her hand filled with abomin abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. Golden cup. Not common. I don't know of a single person who has a golden cup. Maybe it looks like gold but not made of gold. This is a cup made of gold, and the first thing you think of if you see a cup of gold, I don't know about you, but I would think wealth and power. Beauty. Gold is a beautiful thing. It's been almost universally admired by, by people ever since gold has been around. People look at gold and think it's, it's beautiful. But what's on the inside? What's inside this cup? Nothing but filth, abomination. I, I, I was reminded as I was studying this of Jesus' words to the Pharisees. Remember what he called the Pharisees? Especially in Matthew 23. You want to go back sometime and read Jesus basically just peeling the paint off the walls in a rant. Read Matthew 23. He is just blasting the Pharisees in Matthew 23. And one of the things he calls them is whitewashed tombs. He said, you're beautiful on the outside. You're like a gravestone that they whitewashed to make it look nice and shiny and beautiful. He said, but on the inside, you're full of dead man's bones and filthiness. Nothing but death. What was seen as unclean is what's inside you, he's saying. 
This was the religious leaders, the most knowledgeable people of the day in Jesus' time. The people that led Israel on a daily basis in the study of God's word. And he said, you look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside you're full of filth. He also commented about how, you know, they always wanted the best places at the tables and at the feasts. They, they wanted to be recognized and put in the best places. They didn't live up to that reputation, that ability. You know, and, and that's what I thought about here. It's like this is a symbol of great wealth, you know, a golden cup. You know, it, it looks beautiful. It looks desirable. Looks wonderful, but in the inside, it's nothing but filth. You know, it's the abominations of this prostitute. It, it's her adultery, her idolatry, her leading the nations astray. That's what's in her cup. So no matter how good it looks on the outside, it's not very good on the inside. You know, and, and, and that's you, you see in her clothing and the way she is arrayed, her attempt to draw the nations away with what's appealing on the outside. Follow me and look at what I can give you. Look, look at how great I am. Follow me. I can offer you so much, but yet that's not reality. It's not what's really there. And what she really offers is death and eternal separation from God. You know, so it, it's really quite a contrast. And it, again, it just reminded me of, of a lot of what Jesus said to the, to the people of his own day. You know, the old saying we have is you can't judge a book by its cover. And you can't. You know, you have to look for character, not for what's on the outside. You know, and that's what we see here. Look at verses 5 and 6. It says, the name written on her forehead was a mystery. Now, that's... A, and that's an interesting translation because some of you probably have the name written on her, her forehead was mystery, not a mystery. Okay, and, it's, and there's debate among scholars over how that should be translated. Uh, you know, most of what I've read kind of leans more toward being mystery, not a mystery, as it, this is part of the, uh, of the actual title itself. But not everybody agrees with that. But anyways, the name on the forehead was, was a mystery. That's, uh, that's what the NIV has. Babylon the great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. When I saw her, I was greatly astonished. All right, first of all, her title. Now, mystery here. Let me read something to you about that about the word here that is used, mystery, and how that word is used um, in, in the Bible. This leads to the title written on her forehead and the seventh identification, which is simply mystery or mysterion in the Greek New Testament. Some believe that the title is Mystery Babylon the Great, but there does seem to be a 
a, uh, be a distinction uh, being made in these identifications. Generally, in Scripture, the word mystery refers not to a crime scene or an unresolved occurrence, but rather to a fact that could not have been discerned by human uh, ingenuity and had to be revealed by God. However, another use of the term was known to the ancients, referring particularly to the mystery religions, which were all well known in the first century and had a, a history of re reaching all the way back to the genesis of false religion. Here there is evidently a deliberate move on the part of the apostle to identify this scarlet woman in some way with those mystery religions of antiquity. And by the way, that was another one I, in the different commentaries I read, they kind of all agreed. That, that you know, this seems to be a con to, an attempt to connect you know, the whore of Babylon to the ancient mystery religions uh, that had kind of always plagued mankind. And again, going the whole way back to you know, the time of, of the start of, of Babel, of Babylon. In fact, I want you to, to turn in your Bibles back to Genesis chapter 10. And obviously, we're not going to go into great detail in this. But I, I just want us to read this passage and, and just to kind of refamiliarize ourselves with what we see here. I want you to look at verses 8 through 12 in chapter 10. And then we're going to jump over to chapter 11 and read the first nine verses in chapter 11. This is the table of the nations and says, Cush was the father of Nimrod, who became a mighty warrior on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. That is why it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. And by the way, we don't really know what that means. Uh, there's different ideas. It, you know, uh, uh, scholars of Genesis have all kinds of different ideas about what it meant that it said he was a mighty hunter hunter before the Lord. It, probably not that he was literally a hunter, you know, hunting wild animals. It probably had more to do with, with kind of how he comported himself amongst people and, and influenced people. But that, that's a whole other discussion for a whole other time. It says, this, this, uh, first, the first centers of his kingdom were Babylon, Uruk, Akkad and Kalna in Shinar. From, from that land he went to Assyria, where he built Nineveh, Rehoboth-ur, uh, Kala, and Resen, which is between Nineveh and Kala, which is the great city. So we see he was a great builder, and in fact he built a lot of places that became very famous through time and became the centers of great kingdoms. Essentially, he was a kingdom builder, which probably has more to do with the mighty hunter idea. But he, he was a kingdom builder. Uh, and, and, and really, those places we become associated with false worship, you know, with, with, with leading people astray from the truth. The, the Assyrian kingdom and the Babylonian kingdom in particular are associated with the places that, that Nimrod founded. When we look at the first uh, nine verses in chapter 11, it says, Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, Come, let's make bricks and, and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may, uh, may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. 
But the Lord came down to see the, the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, uh, it, it, if as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from all, all over the, scattered them there all over the earth, uh, and they stopped building the city. Uh, that is why it is called Babel, uh, because that, there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the earth. And, and you know, to this day we talk about somebody is babbling. Uh, that is, is essentially what the word meant. It meant to mutter or babble, uh, be confused. And, and that's really what, you know, the name for Babylon was, a place of, of confusion, place place of babble. Um, you know, people have always been interested in, uh, in like, what was going on there. But the, the point of Babel, and again, every, every scholar of Genesis I think I've ever read has made this point. We know now pretty much what ziggurats, ancient, you know, the really, really ancient pyramids were used for. They were used as a, a, a type of worship. They were a place that the God came down and dwelt with people uh, and they served the God on the ziggurat, and the God, the, the ziggurat was considered like a mountain for their God. This is false worship. People have all kinds of ideas of what was going on here. There's really no debate about, amongst this among scholars. This was false worship. That's what they were trying to do. They didn't want to scatter and spread God's name over the earth like God told them to do. They didn't want to bear his image. They wanted to make a name for themselves, which is their stated purpose. They wanted to stay there together, and they wanted to make themselves into a great thing, create their own gods, and that's what was going on in Babylon. It was essentially the beginning of, of pagan worship after the flood. And its spirit would go on throughout the entire rest of human history. It's spoken of throughout the entire rest of the Bible. The constant fight of God's people, the Jewish people, uh, you know, with idolatry and the people all around them. That, that, that false worship goes back to this time. And that's why we have Babylon the Great, the, the one who leads all astray. Because the beginning of that going astray goes the whole way back to this time. To Genesis 10 and 11. That's why it's no coincidence that where did God take Abraham out of? Ur of the Chaldeans, Babylon. He took Abraham out of that same place and pulled him out and he said, okay, you guys want your false worship? I'll give you your way, you can have it. But I'm gonna make a people for myself. I'll call them Israel and they'll be my portion. And what did he tell Abraham, I'll make you a blessing to all the peoples of the world. God's plan was, okay, if, if you want rebellion, I'll let you have what you want. But he always had a plan to win them back. And the plan to win them back would come through the people he made, the people of Abraham. He took them right out of the center of all the, 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 the false worship, and he made a true people out of them. Even though they kept failing him, they, they remained the apple of his eye, and he said, I will bring the one that will win them all back, Jesus Christ. 
So there's no coincidence that this name keeps popping up over and over and over again. And Paul dealt with all this in Romans 1, where he talked about how people went astray and and, and they, they, they purposefully denied their knowledge of the real God. They knew God. But they denied that knowledge and they created their own God, gods out of creeping things and four-legged beasts and, and, and other creatures. They, they made images to worship. And, and pretty much every New Testament scholar I've read believes that refers back to this time. It didn't happen at Genesis, or in Genesis 1. You know, the sin of Adam in the first three chapters, we don't see him going into false worship and all those things. We see that now. And so that's what Paul is probably really referencing uh, is, is this event. So that's why we see it popping up here. You know, so the, the, she gets the title mystery to connect her to these mystery religions. And the next thing that's said about her is she is Babylon the Great. Again, connecting her to these mystery religions and the beginning of the idolatry that would lead people away from God. And who's always been behind that? Always from the beginning, Satan. The same one that's behind it now. And that's kind of the point that's being made here, and we need to understand that. You know, sometimes we think of these events as, well, they're just future things, and boom, they'll take place at that time period, and boy, Satan will really start to work then. No. Satan has been working, has always been working throughout mankind's history. Ever since he was cast down, he's been working. And his work has led to this point. There is a connection between the end of the human race and, the, and, and its, its sins and its beginnings. And that connection is made here with this false prophet. It's the same message. Again, come in, let me read just something briefly to you from Dr. Patterson's commentary here. The construction of the Tower of Babel was not a clever idol like Jack and the Beanstalk, whereby a tower enables humans to climb into the heavens, which is what a lot of people think was going on there. He says the ancients were far more sophisticated than that. What does seem to be in view is the establishment of a religion with a central temple, and that religion is in contradiction to the revealed faith of God. Consequently, Babylon the Great is identified as the mother of prostitutes and indeed of all the abominations of the earth. In other words, Babylon the Great and the mystery religions constitute the mother of all unfaithfulness. It all began with her and now it ends with her. That's that's the connection that God is trying to make in this passage. Now, verse 6 it says, I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who bore the testimony of Jesus. Another thing that is a mark of, of you know, identifying mark of this, you know, prostitute of Babylon is the fact that she persecutes God's people. And what have we seen leading up to all this time in, in the book of Revelation? You know, we saw the, the, the killing of God's people, the killing of the faithful. Remember the whole way back to when we saw the, the, you know, the martyrs underneath the throne of God in heaven 
crying out to God, how long will it be, God? How long will it be until, you know, until you make it all right? Until you avenge us, until you bring justice? How long will it be? And remember God's answer? It's until the last of the martyrs are done. It's not, well, it's only going to be a short time, hang on. You know, oh, it'll be till my patience is, you know, run thin. All those things may be true. But his specific answer is, until the last martyr is martyred. More people are going to die. You know, so this, this phrase that, that he ends this description with is, she's drunk on the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who bore the testimony of Jesus is a very real thing that we see taking place in the book of Revelation. The destruction or the attempted destruction of God's people. All being led by the Antichrist and his false prophet. It, it's sad to think of a, any religious system as the one leading to the the persecution and destruction of other people, but it's not the first time we've seen that in history, is it? Because Satan is always behind this. That's the, the idea. It, it's something that repeats itself over and over again. Now, John's reaction is, is fascinating. It says, when I saw her, I was greatly astonished. Now, I want you to think about all the things that John has seen. All the things that we've read in the course of this study. I, I mean, some of them kind of astonish us. Like, you know, we read them, we're like, oh my gosh, like, can you imagine seeing something like that? But yet, this seems to be the thing that, maybe more so than anything else, kind of made John go, whoa, what, what is going on? I mean, I don't know about you, but I kind of find that interesting. I, I you know, we'll, we'll discuss that more next week. We're, uh, because we're going to see that when we get into uh, verse 7, even the angel has that reaction to John. Let's jump ahead a little bit and read verse 7. Then the angel said to me, why are you astonished? It, it, what? You're, you're, you're astonished by this? Uh, of all the things that you've seen? Even the angel's kind of like, what? So, I, I mean, we'll talk a little bit more about that next week. I don't know if I really even have an answer. I don't know if there is a good answer for why he was so astonished. I'm, there's tons of speculation. But I, I don't know that any of us really know why he was so astonished at this. But for whatever reason, the revelation of this truth seemed to really take John back. And, and maybe it's just that sense that we, we don't really think, uh, you know, about the depths of Satan's deception. We do think contemporary with ourselves all the time, don't we? we? We view the world through our contemporary eyes and we think, boy, you know, and, and you, I, you, know, you hear this all the time, boy, just look at how bad things are out there right now. Now, I've heard so many times like the phrase, oh, things have never been worse than they are right now. They've never been this bad. It, but that's not right. That's not accurate. The point the Bible's making is they've always been this bad because Satan is the one that's behind it. He's been leading mankind astray ever since mankind went astray. And he's continually at work. 
And, and all we ever do is we see kind of like, look, it's like looking in a, a whole series of windows, and the only one we can look in through is the one that, that's in our lifetime. But we don't take the, t- the step to go like this and look at the other windows and see the same thing's happening in there all the time. And, and, you know, and that's the best I can come up with for why John is so astonished. It's like the, finally that realization of like, oh my gosh, this goes the whole way back to the beginning. This goes at least as far back as the Tower of Babel. Oh my word, I never picked that up. I really think that's more probably than anything what's going on with John. But again, nobody, you know, we don't know that for sure. There's no way that we can really know for sure, but you know, I just find this kind of funny. It's, it's almost comical that even the angel's kind of like, what? Why are you, why are you astonished by this? You know, so it, it's just uh, it's an interesting note to, to leave these first six verses on. Like, like I said, uh, next week, read verses 7 through 18. Um, that is what we will cover next week. And, and largely, they will just go back over what we've read, and, and they will just give more definition to the things that we've already read. They will kind of define the symbols that we've already seen here. Okay, So that's your assignment for next week. Read, read verses 7 through 18, and, and we'll take a look at that next week. Let's uh, close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the opportunity to come and, and look into your word. Um, Father, please help us to, to truly think biblically, to, to think uh, more comprehensively about what it is that you are doing, what our enemy is doing, uh, to see all of the world, all of life, all of human history through a, a biblical lens so that we can understand uh, that you are always at work, our enemy is always at work. This is a battle that has always been going on uh, ever since the fall, and, and Father, you are faithful, and you are strong, and you are almighty, and you will win. Uh, you've already won. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a guarantee uh, victory, but uh, you, we, are, we are left here fighting our little personal part of the war each and every day, and so I just pray that you would empower us, uh, focus us, help us to to be your people and to live for you each and every day. And we just ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I right, thank you, everybody.